What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. What's up, Hardwood Knox listeners? In case you haven't heard, Blue Wire Studios just dropped their first original podcast, Golden Goal. The show gives you 10-minute episodes all about soccer legends and the moments that made them. Whether you're just learning about soccer for the first time or a diehard fan, this podcast is a great listen for everyone. The final two episodes are live right now, or you can binge the entire season to learn about your favorite soccer stars. Check out Blue Wire's Golden Goal, available anywhere you listen to podcasts. What is up, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Favalli, coming at you with my fabulous co-host, Adam Frommel. We are taking a break from our top 10 players of the decade for every NBA team series, and we're going into the awards balance. The NBA announced that they're going to base these decisions off of the season through March 11th, and we were sort of holding off to see whether they were going to include the games that would happen in the bubble. Turns out they are not, and so we're going to start dropping awards. There will be separate pods for All-NBA, All-Defense, All-Rookie. We're just going to go through the seven year-end awards right here. Before we get started, though, first and foremost, shout out to our sponsor, BetOnline.ag. They make this help make this podcast possible. And second, and equally important, Adam, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, this is the last podcast that I'm going to be recording with you before I get to go on a, a much needed and properly socially distanced and safe vacation. It's the uh, the first time either my wife or I has has taken a full week off since 2016. So I'm excited. That seems like a long time. It, it feels like an even longer time. That's sort of the problem with, I, I mean, you have a child, which I think factors into that as well. But with work culture in general now is I don't think there's such a thing as just a full on vacation anymore. I remember my wife getting mad at me for answering emails and phone calls when we were on our, our honeymoon after our wedding. And there's, just, I mean, that's on you. That's it's a hundred percent on me, but hasn't like the work culture made it nigh impossible to completely unplug. Oh, absolutely. Every time I do, I feel guilty. Like there's definitely, there's definitely a propensity to do too much work sometimes I think. And it's, it's really hard to pull yourself away from everything. I think we both have that issue. If anyone has suggestions, particularly people that are in that business, to help me and Adam unplug more often, DM him. Don't DM me. It's fine. DM Adam. Frommel09. At Frommel09. But are you ready to go through this these ballots? I am. So I'm we're excited. Gonna, it's, we have top it's, three for each, right? We do. And, and it's still weird that like we're even doing this at this stage of the year, the season, Time is meaningless. It's a flat circle, as a as a as a TV show once said. Um, but I, I just, yeah, it's it's like it, it's so strange that we're talking awards with regular seasons games left to play, with postseason seeds unsettled. This is just it's it's strange. We haven't seen basketball in four plus months, and we're recording an awards podcast that's about a retrospective. It's not predictive for next season. Oh, it feels should- like we're talking about ancient history if we even talk about like October of 2019. Right. I should note, as someone who's been super critical of sports resuming in general, and in the sense that 
I'm not an expert, but I, it just didn't feel right. The NBA did have zero tests in the bubble of 346 that were given out on Monday or Tuesday, I believe. I can't remember the day at this point. That's that's great. I think that's just celebrate good news. I don't think it's necessarily telltale of what's to come, but we finally got some just good news on the NBA restart front. And so that's encouraging. And maybe we'll be recording this for a purpose of, oh, we're going to watch actual basketball soon and we can see how right or wrong our picks ultimately were. I still think there's some level of cognitive dissonance in play here just because it's it's 100% great news that there were no positive tests. It's less great news that those tests are all turned around so quickly and we still see wait times throughout the country. And like it, I, I still have to grapple with the idea that the NBA is allocating resources, whether it's taking away or not, but they're definitely like turning around results quicker and using these proximity indicators that could be better used elsewhere. So it, it still is like, I'm I'm happy that the plan is working, that the players seem to be in a safe situation, but it still feels like it's just a little funky. It, there does feel like a morality dilemma there. Um, I know that the the agency or laboratory, whatever you're saying that they're using, is that the NBA is not affecting their own turnaround time. But if it gets to a point where that's possible or that actually happens is where it gets even harder to grapple with. And so right now, I kind of feel not. I was more worried about the the sanctity of the bubble, the effectiveness of it. And that was sort of secondary at the point. If we get to a time, I guess, where now that can be the main concern because we've established that the bubble is working, maybe that's even a, a good sign. But yeah, it's, it's tough all around. But I do think objectively, while I don't know that it's telltale, it's just good news to hear that there were zero cases returned positive for COVID. 100%. 100%. Yeah, I think I mean, that's a great segue to get into executive of the year talk. I don't know about you. If you can flesh out that segue, I would love to hear it. Well, we have good news for people that want Pat Riley to win Executive <laughs> of the Year. <laughs> Maybe if we're looking at your ballot. Yeah, so Executive of the Year. Uh, so let's do it this way. I'll give my top three. You want to give your top three? And we'll do that. We can mention any other names that might spring to mind for us. But my top three were Pat Riley, Lawrence Frank was second, David Griffin was third. So I've got Sam Presti third. And then Pat Riley second, and Lawrence Frank first. So we had this, uh, I had Sam Presti, him and Chris Wallace uh, of the Grizzlies were the other two people I considered. What is Masai Ujiri should probably get some retroactive credit just for building so much depth that Toronto is still such a powerhouse. Right. But it does, it, it felt weird to like give him an award for what he's done in previous seasons. Yeah, it's like, can you weigh like things that marinate in this? I think you can to some extent, but when you to some extent, yeah. But you know, Terrence Davis and Matt Thomas, like, they're only going to get you so far in this. I mean, OG Ananobi's development matters. He's still riding the Pascal Siakam wave. But if someone wants to put him in the top five, I just don't know that he belongs in the top three relative to the parameters. I would imagine that your case for Lawrence Frank is is pretty blunt. It's it's pretty simple. It's uh, it's managing to acquire Kawhi Leonard and Paul George in the same offseason while maintaining the core of the team. It's as simple as that. Yeah, And he, I, I do think it's, it's really cool that we have a year where two general managers on opposing sides of the same trade are both getting love for that trade. Like the Thunder's ability to give up Paul George, get a reasonable return for him, and stay this competitive because you also managed to get Chris Paul and he's had such a phenomenal season as we'll get to later. Like that's, that's just really cool. I, I don't know the last time two prominent contenders for the executive of the year award had involvement in the same blockbuster trade. 
Yeah, I mean, to get Shea, Gilgis, Alexander, and Danilo Gallinari in, as part of the Paul George uh, trade, plus all that cachet of draft picks was was huge. And they, they are sort of, I, I think the Russell Westbrook trade immediately was more helpful to them because this season specifically, they, they have the better player. I just don't really think that's up for debate at all. It's not. <laughs> uh, I had, I still went with Pat Riley just because the Heat didn't have cap space and they still managed to go out and get Jimmy Butler. And then uh, this is sort of the Masai Ujiri case where having the Duncan Robinson, um, even Kendrick Nunn, since they had signed him last season, like those, those finds sort of marinate. Um, and so I think you have to commend him for that. There's even the Bam Adebayo, like this is his boom. And so you have to give that front office credit for uh, drafting him in the first place. But th- it was close between that and Lawrence Frank for me. And then look, the Pelicans are just there. They might not make the playoffs. If Zion was healthy all year, I, I, I might be inclined to say they definitely would have made the playoffs. But it looks like they've set themselves up really nicely for both the present and future, despite trading who is a top seven player in Anthony Davis over the summer and being forced into it. It's not something that they wanted to do at the time. What pushed Lawrence Frank of the Clippers ahead for me was that the the success of the team is a direct result of his moves. You can give credit to Doc Rivers for the coaching job that he's done in Los Angeles, but it was still a direct byproduct of that movement. Whereas while Pat Riley made good moves while continuing to leave cap space open for future free agency pursuits, I think so much of the credit there, the internal development, the coaching of Eric Spolstra has to go to other places that it was difficult for me to put him in the number one spot. I, I think sort of the, that's a good way to look at it, but some of the things he like did on like transaction wise on the margins actually helped his case for me. There's also let's not forget drafted Tyler Hero. Uh, I already went over Jimmy Butler. They jettisoned Hassan Whiteside, which then cleared the way for Bam Adebayo's breakout, which I think certainly helps. Uh, signing getting undrafted. Iguodala could be be big. Like there are Chris a Silva lot of those fringe moves. Looks like an actual yeah. okay find. And let's not forget the Duncan Robinson. Duncan Robinson, but the James Johnson and Deion Waiters trade itself. He was able to, you know, you sold high on Justice Winslow while he was injured, and you were able to get off both James Johnson and Deion Waiters without trading a future first-round pick or a high-end prospect aside from Winslow in the process. And so uh, him doing moves, his doing moves in the middle of the season, I think probably tipped him over the edge for me. That's fair. And I think the Winslow move looks even better now. Uh, 15 minutes before we started recording this, uh, Winslow was ruled out for the rest of the season. Um, with a hip injury so he didn't give up much to get Iguodala in that move um, but yeah it was he he is a very deserving candidate I, I just stand by him having an impact but not the whole impact on why that team is successful whereas with Frank like managing to to keep all the pieces together and acquiring two marquee superstars in the same offseason is is untouchable for me I think I think that's a totally fair to look at and look they traded for Marcus Morris middle of the season too can't forget about that we haven't really seeing whether he's a great fit. He wasn't playing too well at the time, but that's also something else to to consider. Coach of the year. Uh, do you want me to go first? Do you want to go first on this one? I mean, this is the easiest pick of all for me. It's Nick Nurse of the Toronto Raptors. I don't, I don't think there's really any debate there, just given his ability to continue keeping this roster at the top of the Eastern Conference after losing Danny Green and, to a lesser extent, Kawhi Leonard. Sorry, that was backwards. Um just continuing to make sure that every piece of that rotation thrives, continuing to get the most out of Pascal Siakam. Everything has worked. I'm really excited to see what he can do during the restart with so much time to continue working with all of the pieces healthy. No, no Raptor has really stayed healthy throughout this entire season and they've still been this successful. So given 
given the extra time, he's going to run strategic circles around everyone else. It seems like there's a huge list of second tier contenders for this this award. I personally had Taylor Jenkins and Eric Spolstra in my second and third spots, but you can very easily make cases for Frank Vogel, Rick Carlisle, Billy Donovan, Mike Budenholzer, and probably some others. Yeah, Nick Nurse was my number one too for all the reasons you outlined. And then just the contributions he's gotten from those fringe roster guys we thought that the organization has given him. They got quality minutes from Rondé Hollis-Jefferson when they were really banged up this year. I'm a big Terrence Davis guy. You know that as well. The lineups that he throws out there can can be really funky. He's It feels like he's leaning on Pascal Siakam on offense, uh, almost in spite of the results sometimes. And that's not really a shot at Pascal Siakam, but it's he's so determined to make sure that Pascal Siakam is going to be okay as this primary initiator in the half court, not just on, uh, not just on the break. And the, the Raptors are still finding a way to weather it. And I do think that he is, the coaching staff in general, is a big part of their defensive success. It's certainly the personnel that they've put in place. But... Toronto can really shape shift just depending on its opponents. So he's the easy number one for me. It's slushing out the rest of the ballot. That's where it gets tough. I'd spo number two like you. And then I went with Doc Rivers actually because of all the injuries that the Clippers navigated. Um, Paul George wasn't the most available. You've had Patrick Beverly miss some time. Um, there's been a lot of inconsistency there. And then we've argued that their sort of optionality is one of their greatest strengths, but it's also probably more so moving forward than it was this season because injuries made decisions for him, but you're looking at who's going to close games for this team. How do you balance Lou Williams' inclusion um, when he hurts you on defense? And yes, his offense is valuable, but you have all these other ball handlers. And so I give him a lot of credit for what he's done, but I also had Stevens. I went five deep for this one. You know, Stevens belongs on there, and then Taylor Jenkins, Frank Vogel could be tied. Even Billy Donovan, I'm not sure if you mentioned him too, but just for the what the Thunder have done this season. And, and if you want to mention Rick Carlisle, they've dealt with a ton of injuries as well, and then inconsistency from Kristaps Porzingis too. I feel like Carlisle is the guy that never gets enough credit in this conversation because he's part of it every year. It's just like perpetual voter fatigue. But what he's done with the Mavericks has been incredible, just fully unleashing Doncic, who's made that huge second-year jump, while having his troops literally produce the best offensive rating in NBA history which is not an easy accomplishment, even in today's three heavy game. Like he, he has gotten the best out of Tim Hardaway Jr. He has made sure that his rotation has been able to navigate all of those injuries and, and working in Kristaps. Just what he's done has been incredible, pushing this Dallas team so far ahead of schedule that they're like a legitimate lower tier contender where it wouldn't be that surprising if they got hot during a playoff series and knocked off one of the premier teams. Uh, he he deserves love every year, and this one is no different. I feel like whatever, we'll say three bench player lineup or more that he wants to roll out there is just going to be a net plus. That's just every season. That's just what it feels like. If you're struggling in the NBA, just go join Dallas, and Rick Carlisle will manage to make it work somehow. The last note on this I wanted to say is, and I had talked about this on a previous podcast, it feels like the Raptors, just to bring it back to Nick Nurse, the the reputation that the San Antonio Spurs has as this just billboard for the, the best culture in the NBA and the, maybe the best like developmental uh, track record. Like it feels like they're that team now, and so the track record doesn't stem too deep at this point. But it's they're the team that seems to epitomize the the best culture in the league. And then if you want to put a fringe roster guy on their depth chart, that's where you're going to believe most that he would crack the rotation and, and, and be actually good. Toronto was a very popular lottery finish projection going into this season. Like 
there were a number of prominent outlets and writers who had them outside of the playoff picture. And it's like unfathomable, unfathomable now that a decade has passed since the start of the year. But like, that was the reality. Two decades even. <laughs> it wouldn't be surprising. Sports are coming back, and so are your chances to bet on your favorite teams and events. And there's no better place to start than our exclusive partner, Bet Online. Get in on the action for this week's big UFC fight, or check out odds on NASCAR, Formula One, and the Premier League. Can't wait for your team to come back? Bet Online has futures odds, including win totals, division winners, and even league championships. Or check out daily simulations of Madden and NBA 2K to watch and wager on. Visit betonline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your new welcome bonus. That's promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online wagering experts. Next up on our list, sixth man of the year. Uh, I'll go through mine since you did yours last. This was, I hate my ballot. I just want, just FYI right now. I hate this award in general. It's so tough to parse. Uh, I went with Montrez Harrell, number one. Dante DiVincenzo was number two for what I believe is a stellar two-way impact and for fitting alongside all of the best players on his team. Then I had Dennis Schroeder, third. Honorable mentions for me, by the way, to Justin Holiday, And then, of course, this is the Lou Williams slash Jamal Crawford award, so we have to mention Lou Williams in this. I had um, I had Jordan Clarkson third for what he's done with the Utah Jazz, just becoming that high-scoring bench weapon that they really need. Uh, my second place was Montrez Harrell, and first place was Dennis Schroeder for me. Um, I I devalued Trez for two reasons. One is that by definition, there's only one sixth man on a team, and it's hard to tell whether that's him or Lou Williams on the Clippers, just because they have two prominent bench pieces. And then also Schroeder is part of the closing lineup in Oklahoma city, that three guard monster lineup that they use with Chris Paul and Shea Gilgis Alexander. That's so important to their success. He is an integral figure of that while having the best season of his career. Montrez typically thrives against backups and there's immense value and being able to do that and to keep your team afloat against second units and maintain leads. But you don't see him as part of the closing lineups as often, and you don't see him playing against the best adversaries that there are to offer, as opposed to Schroeder, who is on the floor for those moments. I agree with building up Schroeder in that regard, but for the season specifically, Trez did log enough time to the starters with me and in closing lineups to put him here. What probably is his bigger detraction this is just my opinion specifically, would be I don't know that he's the best fit on their team alongside their best players. And where you can say that Dennis Schroeder is working with Oklahoma City's best players, I knock Schroeder because uh, the offense craters whenever he doesn't play with with Chris Paul. And I don't know how much that matters if you're coming off the bench, but part of this should be you're trying to bridge the gap of a superstar absence. And Trez is better suited to do that. Of course, he has Lou Williams to help him, which then gets into the trouble with parsing this award. He also, he's a little bit more self-sufficient than I think people give him credit for. Like, he can really, he can put the ball on the floor and go in a straight line and use some force on the block. But no, he's not going to be headlining these lineups on his own. His numbers and his efficiency this season, though, were just absolutely off the charts. And he'll, he'll outwork pretty much anyone. And so he was there for me. I considered putting Dante DiVincenzo in first probably for longer than I should have. He just doesn't have the the sample size that a lot of the other guys do on this list, but they've played him at point guard in Milwaukee. He fits with their best players. He's run some units without both Giannis and Chris Middleton that have been okay. 
Uh, I did notice that some of the advanced defensive metrics, uh, specifically ESPN's defensive real plus minus, which I believe they tweaked, don't love him as much as they did before. I still do believe that he has a real defensive impact. Breaking up plays from from behind is not a bad rebounder for for his position. So he's someone that I don't think is going to get enough love in this, but that might also be because George Hill has been so good for them too. And that's why Dennis Schroeder is so appealing is because there's there's not that other guy on the team to take votes away or consideration away. Justin Holiday deserves, though, some consideration. He's been an absolute monster on offense this year, just looking at his efficiency. And then they've had him defending up to power forwards. Uh, those are backup power forwards, but still, he's 6'6", and I know he's long, but he's not like this huge, burly guy, and so that's super impressive. I definitely spent a good bit of time considering both George Hill and Dante DiVincenzo. I, I think that DiVincenzo in particular is one of those cases that requires so much nuance that it, he's more likely to feature in a should-be-there than is-going-to-be-there conversation, and I'm not entirely sure how we're slanting this because those are so inextricable. Um I also want to note that I hate saying bad things about Montrez Harrell. Like <laughs> I would love nothing more than for him to win because he's so much fun to watch. And that hustle is just infectious. The, he, he, I, I always love guys who maximize every bit of talent they have every moment that they're on the floor. And he fits that to a T. I, maybe this is like a sympathy nod for him because I almost feel like you could take him off the Clippers and they're not that much worse. I know, that, I know. And that's why I feel horrible, but he, he he's really good. So he is. I, I want to make that clear, uh, but that I can't shake that feeling either. And it's probably because he's also of, in the perfect role. Correct. I, I don't think like if he, if, if some team decides to, to trade for him or pay to pay him big money in free agency to be a featured piece, I don't think that's going to work too well. But like on a contender where he can make the most of more limited minutes, it's perfect for him. Right. And so that's why I'm fascinated by his free agency. I'm fascinated by a lot of players' free agencies because if he wants to get more than the middle of exception, I'm assuming the Clippers will give him well more than that. But when you look at the teams that have cap space, there's going to be about four to six of them. Unless the New York Knicks get drunk on tweener bigs again or Charlotte really wants Trez, and I guess that's possible, I just don't see a clear market for him. And it, it doesn't... I'd like him a lot more if he provided you just a little bit more value on defense, where it's, um, can he anchor an above average defense just as the primary backline defender? And there are minutes when he can do that, but can he do it against starters? Those are all fair questions. And then he's not someone that you're going to want to pull out to the perimeter either. I um, mean, he's not the best rebounder. Maybe if the personnel around him different, where you don't rely on the wings um, to pick up boards too, perhaps he can do a little bit more there. Uh, I just don't, I don't know who would, give him the big money contract in part because there's not a ton of cap space, but for also the reasons that you outlined is he, it seems like he requires just this very specific type of roster to be around. I do. I do just want to reiterate that I hate this award. Like the, the whole concept of the sixth man of the year is dumb because starting shouldn't be as relevant as it is in the right. NBA. It's more about being a part of the closing lineup. Or just and it's not like we're giving an award in general. People, yeah. Yeah, who aren't a part of the closing lineup. And it also just the voting so much tends to be like, hey, let's look through, see guys who didn't start, and then see who scored the most points. What I will say is that it can be hard to come off the bench in, I would say, more limited minutes. I mean, look, <laughs> right. Montrezl Harrell is averaging 27.8 minutes per game. Like that's Those are starter minutes, basically. But if you're playing between... You know, let's look at Christian Wood before he was inserted into the starting lineup, who you could have considered, depending on what your criteria is for this. Derek Rose also could deserve an honorable mention. I didn't pick him, and I was going to put him high, but he was starting when this whole, um, when Lee shut down. But Seth Curry was a name that I didn't think enough mm. people considered for this. It's, but it, 
anyway, I believe in a rhythm. And I'm not sure how much I believe in it, like how, how can it impact your performance, but coming off the bench and being expected to make a high-level impact when your minutes are going to come in smaller bursts and maybe a little bit more irregularly, and a lot of teams are good with their substitution patterns, obviously, but when your sample's a little bit smaller and you don't have the, the luxury of sort of warming up to your role, uh, I do respect that, and so maybe that's why this award is still prevalent, but I, I absolutely agree with you that starting shouldn't be like this identifier like it ha- it's almost like positions at this point where those just don't matter at, as much as they did in the past agreed on all fronts which brings us to the rookie of the year award which i don't think is tough and is only a controversy if you're going to select a certain someone i went first last time so we'll let you go first here so i mean i, I have john morant winning this award because duh He's been incredible for the Memphis Grizzlies on so many levels, just pushing that team way ahead of schedule into the playoff picture, taking control of the offense, avoiding the typical rookie pitfalls of inefficient shooting and turnover woes. He's exciting. He's invigorating. He's given the franchise a new identity after the grid and grind era. Just he checks every single box with aplomb. He's the obvious winner here. Zion Williamson is still number two on my ballot because he's made such an incredible impact in the 19 games that he's played. But the fact that he's only played 19 games means that he basically is disqualified from rising any higher. You could give third place, you could give second place to Brandon Clark because he's been so effective. But because there's such a huge gap between one and everyone else, I'm just going to give it to Cam Reddish because go Hawks. Wow. I'm just going to pencil that in as a Brandon Clark because that's the that's the correct pick. So it is it is the correct pick, but like I'm going to give a little love to Reddish for improving throughout the year and shooting the three well, when completely the doing away with his slow start and convincing Atlanta fans that he might actually be a long term piece, even though they and and by they I mean me questioned the selection in the draft and questioned even more when he struggled at the start of the year more questionable to me is what they gave up to draft deandre hunter that just didn't seem like the draft to make that move it did not you're welcome clark is really third (laughs) so i had john morant number one as well and where we're going to differ is because i already believe that zion williamson is the best rookie in the nba the best player of this rookie class and so if i'm not going to put him one I need to steer into it, and I'm going to put Brandon Clark, too, because he has the larger sample. He was really good, and I think that effectiveness has to matter. So if I'm going to wait sample for John Morant over Williamson when I believe that Zion's already better, that's, that was just my rationale there. But two, for, for John Morant, I, I also don't think that right now, and this isn't necessarily a hot take, but I believe Zion Williamson is better. I don't believe it's by much. Uh, Oscar Robinson. Until- yeah, I'm not sure that's a statement that deserves to go unchallenged. so uh, look just to contextualize his season this year um oscar robinson until this season was the only other first year player to average at least 20 points and eight assists while matching morant's true shooting that's cross error comparisons are tough but holy wow uh and we can now throw um oh trey young was in there as well so it was trey young and uh, oscar robinson so excuse me but that's still incredible company to be in and the burden he he carries on offense for a rookie is just, it's mind melting and there's the escapism off the dribble. And this is something I didn't watch closely enough, but Zach Lowe had talked about it on his podcast is that people like me who are worried about his fit with Justice Winslow long-term, maybe even Kyle Anderson and Dylan Brooks, because he needs the ball in his hand. um, He does work off the ball and really goes after it on cuts. And so now this is someone who, I don't know if you want to call him plug and play, but if he ups his three point volume a little bit, because he's hitting the threes that he's taking mostly off the dribble, 
we're talking about an MVP level talent. And so there might be two MVP level talents that come out of uh, this draft class, which is just absolutely bonkers. And so Brandon Clark, though, two for me, and then Zion was three. I had Eric Pascal as an honorable mention here. I would have put him fourth. And then PJ Washington started off really hot, but he was, there was a roller coaster ride throughout the season, but I think he held it pretty steady, especially on offense throughout the year that he could probably deserve some, some just, you know, residual dap in this discussion. I just, I can't get over how good Morant is as a 20 year old rookie. It just, it's unfathomable how good he is at this age, the command that he has over the offense. The, the only thing that I wish he would change is how he lands because it terrifies me every time land on two feet. Don't land at weird angles, protect your body. There's, there's so much of his game that reminds me of Dwayne Wade, just the ability to attack and, and kind of play contortionist in the air and, and leap early and go in the air in unexpected ways. Wade was such a good faller. He never seemed to get hurt when he hit the ground. He knew how to take contact and absorb it and get up fast. And we've seen Morant have more awkward falls in his rookie season than Wade has had in his entire career, or so it seems. And I just, I need him to change that because we we cannot afford to lose this talent. Right. He is a, I would call him a violent lander is the best yes. way to put it. Yes. And you need to be a soft lander if you play the way that he does. Fun fact, one of my puppies, Wade, gives me the same anxiety when he lands after <laughs> jumping. But he's also just like this violent jumper where it seems like his, I'm worried he's going to displace his hip at some point because it's just so violent to one side. But Morant is a graceful leaper. I'll say that. It's the landing. Where it yes. is. And, oh, you know what yes. I like about him is that he seems like he wants to murder you at the rim. Like anytime he sees a seven foot or anywhere near the vicinity of the basket, he's just going to try and take off like that. He has that it factor right. for sure. Like in every way, in every way, he's like every once in a while there come along these players who like, you can't help but get really excited when you watch them, when you talk about them, when you think about them, whatever it may be. And we knew Zion was going to be that. And he is that, but I don't think we expected jaw to reach that level of excitement this quickly but like you can't talk about this guy without smiling something i will say about zion that i actually was concerned about was how he would work in a half court offense just because you know when he gets going downhill on the break and everything that he's impossible to stop he is so quick with everything he does in the half court that no you don't necessarily want him initiating yet but he's going to pass or drive or a you know, work in the post. Like it doesn't seem like his possessions last a long time. So that he doesn't, the IQ is there for him to become a more methodical player. But right now he's like smart enough to where he doesn't need to do that either. And so his dominance, that's why it feels so real to me. And look, 28.5 points, 8.2 rebounds, 2.6 assists per 36 minutes while hitting 59.5% of his twos speak for itself. And then also, I believe this is a factual statement, but Brandon Clark has yet to miss a floater this year. I think that's correct. I think, I think correct. he might have made more than he's taken at this point. Yeah, that's yeah. Brandon Clark has has made more floaters than he's attempted. Let's let's write that down. The next award we have coming up here is most improved player, and as some of my message apps go off in the background, so I'll start with this one. I had Luka Doncic at one, Brandon Ingram at two, and Bam Adebayo at three. I also gave consideration to Christian Wood and Jason Tatum. People could probably also make cases for Pascal Siakam. They're, you know, small cases to be made for Devontae Graham as as well. But but Doncic for me, 
is like he was already carrying superstar usage last year and then just exploded anyway. And so you're looking at his usage skyrocketing. Um, and yet he's upped his two point shooting by basically 7%. He's shooting 57.7% on twos compared to uh, 57.4% on twos compared to 50.3% last year. His three point clip is down, but his overall true shooting percentage is up by almost four points. His usage is at 37 up from 30.5. And he's just, he's more dynamic than he was last year. He's just stronger when it comes to finishing on his drives and his floaters, generally craftier. Uh, he just feels like he is more of the complete package. I know he's had his crunch time issues last year, but where he was splashing in just step back trickles at the uh, triples at this ridiculous rate and flinging ridiculous passes. And now feels like he's just rounded out his game more to create more chaos when he's inside the arc. And the, the list of players to average more than 28 points and eight assists per game on his efficiency includes Trey Young doing it this year, James Harden and LeBron James, and, and that's it. Just having a monster season. And so while he was already of the, the superstar ilk, he's so much clearly better last year. He went from, what do you want to say, a top 30 to top 25 player last year to now he's got to be top five, top seven. And that's one of the hardest leaps to make. You know, it's easier to go from top 50 or top 100 to just much higher up on that list because you're splitting hairs a little bit more. But once you're trying to crack that really elite superstar tier, it gets really hard to do. And the fact that he did it as a sophomore, it just, it bends your brain. I agree that Luka Doncic is the most improved player in the NBA, and yet he's not on my ballot. And that's only because I personally think that second year players should be disqualified from this award just because we see those bigger jumps happen so frequently and that sophomore leap is almost an expectation for high draft picks. You know, you can you can give love to Devontae Graham, you can give love to Trey Young, you should give love to Luka Doncic, but I I just I can't put those guys on my personal ballot because of that one stipulation. So I, I have Jason Tatum third, I have Christian Wood second, and not having him first was difficult, and he might have been first had the season continued and he continued that ridiculous trajectory that he was on just before the shutdown. Um, just to go from a guy who struggled to stick on any roster to being an absolute no-doubt keeper for the Detroit Pistons was huge. I do have Bam Adebayo in first place um, because he completely transformed his game. He made the scoring leap. He made even more of a defensive leap. He went from being a seldom used distributor to being one of the Heat's primary playmakers while still serving as this all-around defensive weapon who could also score from all over the court. Just the the level of importance to that team that he gained from his second to his third season without sacrificing any effectiveness but actually getting better. His His jump was not just a byproduct of going from 23 to 34 minutes per game. It was him legitimately getting that much better. So I, I totally get the argument for Doncic. I can't really disagree with it because he has made what is an even more difficult leap to make, as you mentioned. But just because of my own personal rules on this vote, I, I, I have to have Adebayo first. Yeah, I almost put him lower because I thought I view it as more um, a circumstance of opportunity for him than an actual leap. But, but, but I think... Is I think those opportunities come because of his skill too. Yeah. And that definitely matters. Um, and I used to ascribe to the same, I won't include second year players on this, but I was basically destroyed for it last year. 
And so I've just decided to kind of be more flexible there this year. But I, I actually understand that as well. And look, I would have no qualms about putting Brandon Ingram first because he's a better shot maker than he was. We always saw him getting to his spots, and we talked about him in our last podcast, so we won't go too in detail here. But as we mentioned then, the fact that he can fit within a wider team dynamic now more seamlessly than he did during his first three seasons in the league that's a big deal and a huge part of his improvement. And so if we were going to remove second-year players from consideration, I would still go with Brandon Ingram uh, as, as number one then. And I, I actually feel like he'll be the one to win the award. I, I don't really have a feel for who's going to win this one. Um, just like sixth man of the year, I don't really know who's going to win that one. And then, like you mentioned, Christian Wood, had the season unfolded differently, he might be higher up here. And then Jason Tatum deserves some love as well. I know people have painted his rise as sort of this one-month transformation it's been way more in the making than that he's been really good this year and it's been more he's just been better i think that people are giving him him credit for are you we also have to well we have to give some love first to pascal siakam who you mentioned briefly just as as an aside but like this guy won most improved player last year and he should have won most improved player last year and he's a very legitimate candidate this time around as well i think that that his leap is more the product of opportunity after Kawhi Leonard left than a lot of these other candidates where he hasn't both gotten bigger volume numbers and more efficient. Um, he, he has sacrificed some effectiveness to take on that bigger role. But just the fact that he won the award last year and is still a legitimate contender this season, that's not supposed to happen. And that is a tremendous testament to the work ethic and desire to keep ascending the superstar hierarchy on his part. Yeah, I think that that's important. That's important to talk about as well. Wade as, agrees. Yeah, Wade. Wade is uh, voicing his is voicing his um, agreement in this process. Do you want to take us through defensive player of the year? Absolutely. Um, this was a little bit of a tricky one, just because there is not much of a historical precedent for one person winning MVP and Defensive Player of the Year. Michael Jordan and Hakeem Olajuwon are the only ones who have done so. But I think Giannis still has to be the favorite. The biggest knock against him that I have is that Brooke Lopez's presence makes his candidacy a little bit tougher because Lopez is another viable uh, another viable selection for the ballot. Um, and the ability to protect the rim lets Giannis thrive in more of a versatile free safety role. But the defense also maintains its effectiveness far better with Giannis on the court without Lopez than vice versa. And it's still clear that he is the the biggest driving factor for their success. So I did have Giannis first. I had Ben Simmons second and Anthony Davis third. There are a lot of a lot of reasonable choices for this one. I think it's it's tougher to to put someone like Kawhi Leonard or Rudy Gobert on the ballot this year, whether for availability or slight declines in effectiveness and possibly some voter fatigue on the last one. But Giannis, Giannis is the deserving winner here, I think. I wanted to put... Joel Embiid would have had a really strong case, I think, if he played more this year. And there did seem to be a stretch of the season for just like a couple weeks where it just didn't feel like he had it. Um, I ended up with... Uh, my honorable mentions would be Kawhi Leonard just because he turned it on like a third of the way through the season or something. Uh, and then Ben Simmons would be another honorable mention for me. I had Anthony Davis at third, and I know people get caught up in his on-off splits just because the Lakers are technically better defensively without him on the floor this season. But when you look at the lineups he has to anchor, he spends a lot of time um, beside you know Kyle Kuzma, Rajon Rondo. Those are just tough lineups to anchor. And I actually think Kyle Kuzma has been a little bit better defensively over the past two seasons than most people have given him credit for. But he's so tough to fit 
positionally on the defensive side of the floor that it does increase the burden for Anthony Davis. Number two for me was Rudy Gobert, just because even when you kind of factor in the malaise that he had, he's still one of the two most impactful defenders in the league. Is that that a fact or an opinion? Wow. Uh, Are, there are no such things as facts. Only okay, opinion. okay. Glad we clarified that. But he he caught a lot of shit. Um, pardon my French there. I've actually been trying to curse less on this podcast for how the, the series unfolded against Houston last year. But by the end of it, like he had kind of, he and the Jazz had adapted. And the fact that he's more of a traditional big man and, and can do that, he does deserve credit for it. He is one of the two biggest rim, rim deterrents in the NBA, depending on how you feel about Joel Embiid. He's not as much of a deer in headlights when he's pulled outside the restricted area as people like to think. And so if, if he had just been a little bit more consistent during the kind of the meat and potatoes of the season, where it seems like he was more th- lethargic when it came to getting back in transition, just for a little while, and it does seem like there was some stuff going on behind the scenes there where maybe he wasn't as happy with his offensive role. That actually matters for this. And look, I'll be open here. Maybe it's just voter fatigue because he won twice. Maybe he's the one that should be winning this. I went with Giannis Antetokounmpo as well, though. And, you know, you mentioned having Brooke Lopez there could actually hurt him. And and I agree. Maybe it pulls some votes away from him. Maybe people believe that his job is just essentially easier. But the Bucks have the best defense in the NBA by a mile. And Giannis Antetokounmpo, they are more than 10 points better per 100 possessions on defense with him on the court. And to have that type of impact is just, it's monstrous. That's the third biggest defensive rating swing among players who've cleared at least 500 minutes of court time. So we're seeing, that's a huge swing for someone who plays for the team that has the league's best defense and a defense that is still in about the 70th percentile of points allowed per 100 possessions when he's off the court, 71st percentile. And he's made 67th percentile, excuse me, I can't get my, my numbers straight here. So he's making the league's best defense that much better. What I've also been impressed with is he has spent more reps at center than ever, and the Bucks have a great defense during those during those stints when he's on the court as their de facto five. Opponents are getting to the rim less when he's on the court as well. They're shooting under forty two percent at the rim uh, against him this season, forty one point eight percent on three point three attempts. Uh, and look, that's the best. That's the stingiest mark among one hundred and twenty five players who are facing at least three attempts at the rim per game. So he's by far to me, but maybe not by far, but it wasn't a hard decision for me to label him as the defensive player of the year this season. More than ever, I see why Gobert is against facts because all of those make a pretty clear case for Giannis. Rudy Gobert I'm going to double down on that because that was just such a dumb statement. That was a bad tweet. That was a bad tweet. And I, I, I can't defend. I think I mocked it on Twitter yesterday as well. I do think he does have a semi-compelling case for this. I just think this season, Giannis has been decidedly better to where it's Yes, you can argue for Gobert, but it's just going to feel like a stretch in comparison to Giannis Antetokounmpo's blend of versatility and volume. Because no, he's not going to shoulder that same backline defensive role that Gobert has, but he does so many different things on the defensive end so consistently and in mass that it pretty clearly takes him past Rudy Gobert's defensive value this season. I also think that if Giannis is going to win a DPOY, it needs to be this year because Ben Simmons is going to win the next few. Wow, that actually is a take. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a little heat on that one, but just the, the versatility and growth that he's shown on that end this year have been tremendous. He, probably more than any other player, including Giannis, has the ability to guard literally anyone on the floor. And his ability to do that is so key for Philadelphia. Just He seems to have 
more of an understanding of schemes and positioning than ever this year. He is constantly in the passing lanes. He is constantly wreaking havoc. There, there are so many things that aren't going to show up in the stat sheet, like the deterrence when he's guarding a star player and he prevents them from even touching the ball because you can't get it by him on an entry pass or on a on, a, on an off ball route around the corners. Just his his ability to impact everything is overwhelming, and I think you can make a case that he's been the best defender in the year in the league this year already. But without the team success that Giannis is enjoying it's harder to to make a case for him in the number one spot, but that's going to change going forward. I honestly wonder if it will be, you know, he's going to, you know, you talked about Brooke Lopez kind of taking away that consideration from Giannis. Joel Embiid, particularly when he plays enough, is definitely going to to soak up votes and sponge them off of uh, Ben Simmons to me. It's really hard. It's really hard to be the defensive player of the year when you're the only good defender on your team though. Like I, I this is, this is one of those awards where I think like having that, that co-star in the area hurts you the least. I think it's still possible to win MVP with another top 10 player alongside you. I think it's definitely possible to win rookie of the year, most improved player, sixth man of the year. But with defensive player of the year, I feel like it's almost a necessity to have another good defender next to you. Because if you don't, the results aren't going to be there. I, I agree that that's the, this is the easiest award in which to overcome if you have that elite partner, but it, I also think it benefits someone like a Rudy Gobert, you know, maybe he'll suffer from voter t- fatigue moving forward, but even look at this last season, like Joe Ingles is a good defender. Joe Ingles isn't a great defender, and Mike Conley wasn't available enough this year, and you know he's older, so he's probably, let's say, league average, maybe slightly above, and so his body of work in Utah has been so impressive during these past three years because he really hasn't been beside another right. close to all-NBA caliber defender. He's one of the few systems unto themselves. Yes, Rudy Gobert is a system unto himself. And so, look, we, we're dumping all over his tweet because it was absolutely terrible. Just absolutely horrible. Phenomenal defender, generational defensive talent. And so that not a knock against what he's done on the court. Our final category, though, and we're going to get this done in sub-50 minutes like we kind of sort of set out to. We said sub-45, but hey, we've been going over an hour lately. Do you want to take us through MVP as well? I would love to. I'm going to have Giannis Antetokounmpo in first place as the runaway winner to make it back-to-back, to make it MVP and DPOY, and then it gets a little trickier. Um, I'm I'm actually going to have James Harden in second place. I know that the the popular wow. opinion the popular opinion is have LeBron James, and there's absolutely a case for that. I think that Harden gets way too much hate. Just his ability to elevate and carry an offense for not just one game, but for significant portions of a season, is so significant. He creates everything for this team, and he did even more when Russell Westbrook was struggling. His ability to thrive on offense, to hold his own on defense while playing against bigger players, enabled Houston to go to this ultra-small ball lineup that they've been using, which in turn allowed Russell Westbrook to break out. Russell Westbrook does not play like he does at the end of the the pre-restart season, the only part that we're considering for these awards, if Harden doesn't absolutely dominate as a generational all-time great offensive player. It's popular to hate on him because he shoots too many free throws and draws too many ticky-tack fouls and plays a ball commandeering, dribble it into the ground style. It works. It's effective. He is a system unto himself, and he had yet another incredible season. I think he's closer to number one than number three. Wow. That's I so I had James Harden number three, 
And I have LeBron James number two, Giannis number one. Anyone who's interested in this, I had Luka Doncic at number four, and I copped out. I have Chris Paul and Damian Lillard tied for fifth on my hypothetical MVP ballot. We were talking I have about Doncic four, and uh, and I'll I'll agree with you on five, but push Paul slightly ahead. And there are other names you can put there, but yeah, just what he's done with Oklahoma City, they're just so much better with him on the floor. And I know the Blazers aren't good this year, but the amount of injuries that they dealt with, they should have been so much worse. And I think you have to admire. I, I, I'm like. I don't know how to weight intangibles, but the fact that you could go and sign Carmelo Anthony and trade for Hassan Whiteside and just everything's going to be fine because, you know, Dame's there. There's a level of that that matters. And look, they were also good when he was on the court. But for LeBron James specifically, I do think he belongs in that second spot because he is so valuable to the Lakers. And I'm hesitant to use on-off splits to illustrate this because it actually does make my point, but it makes the wrong point. I, I can't, for the life of me, they're not that terrible when he's off the floor offensively, despite the fact they don't really have these secondary ball handlers. It's defensively where they've experienced the biggest drop-off. I'll say that comes close to matching the eye test in the sense that LeBron has been a defensive plus this year. He's not chasing around the toughest assignment, but he kind of cares about contesting shots now, and that's certainly something. But the Lakers are 12 points better per 100 possessions with him on the floor. That's the fifth best mark. Uh, fifth largest swing among anyone who's logged at least 1,000 minutes. And I know net rating swings aren't the end-all be-all, but we're talking about um, someone who also leads the league in assists. And look, he's the Lakers' only plus ball handler. I don't really care what the on-off splits say, that their um, offense isn't you know terrible necessarily when he's off the, off the court. But you can't put Anthony Davis in most of these lineups without LeBron. Expect them to work offensively. I don't know how much you reward him for the makeup of a team where you have to believe he had some influence ergo he wanted Anthony Davis, but Anthony Davis is also a top seven player. That's a no brainer deal to make anyway. And so I do think he was clearly number two, but I did have Harden number three, where I think a lot of people might've put Doncic and Harden slump kind of towards where Russell Westbrook had outplayed him, where it felt like for a month or a little bit longer than that, maybe that matters, but just the sheer workload that he carries. And I don't have anything to add really to, to what you put. And so it's not, I don't think it's indefensible that you put him at two, but I, I, I'm legitimately caught off guard because in my mind, I do think that it needs to go Giannis one and then LeBron two. And you putting Harden two, I think kind of validates the separation between Giannis and the field because I was going to ask you if LeBron could have caught up to Giannis during the rest of the regular season, um, yeah. the actual regular season, not whatever games are happening in Orlando because the Bucks had kind of been slumping when the NBA shut down and the Lakers were in play for the best record in the league. But the fact that you put Harden number two just shows me that there is that enormous chasm for you at least between Giannis and, and second place. Yeah, we're, we're looking at like the peak Steph Curry thing again here where his numbers were enough to win unanimous MVP and he didn't play as much as he could have because he was so dominant that he didn't need to. Ultimately, Giannis is having a historic season while only playing around 30 minutes per game because he doesn't have to be on the floor for fourth quarters. And to have it be close is to knock him for being too dominant. I don't like that. I, I, I can't do that. Um, I, I, the Harden, the Harden James thing is, is tough. Um, it's I'm, I'm trying to figure out how best to phrase this because LeBron has. His playmaking is probably his biggest skill throughout his career, his ability to to find open teammates, to read and react the defenses perfectly, to know where everyone's supposed to be at all times, to hit guys right in the shooting pocket and make their shots as easy as possible. And yet he doesn't empower players to become better during the season. It's like when you play with LeBron, you're, you're playing with the LeBron system. Right. Like he's going to make you better when you're on the court, but he's not necessarily going to to help allow the team to thrive when he's not there. 
And I think that that Harden's playing style and, and ability to thrive within that playing style have done the opposite this season, where we don't see as big on-off splits for him, and they're still around six six points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor. But we don't see as, as large a swing because by thriving in this role to such an extent, he's also allowed other players to get better by catering the system to work towards his entire team. And I, I think that... In a, in a weird, bigger context picture, that that's been more valuable to the Rockets than what LeBron has done for the Lakers has been. Yeah, I mean, look, the other case for Harden, too, is just 36.4 usage and 61.6 shooting percentage. I'm not trying to dilute his case down further, but just because of what, what he's able to do to get to the line, but then also he's hitting those ridiculously difficult threes as well. The volume he shoulders and the efficiency that with which he ferries it is is truly impressive. And LeBron's not at a point in his career where he needs to do that. And so what also helps Harden is his second best teammate. There's an even there's a huge gap between him and Russell Westbrook. And it's definitely smaller between LeBron and AD. I don't think AD deserved the uh, MVP consideration that he got at the beginning and the middle of the season. It does seem like it it faded, but he's a top I'd say consensus top seven. Some people would argue top five and LeBron's in there too. I'm not even sure Russell Westbrook is one of the, is top 18 right now. I mean, he's definitely not a consensus top 15. And so you have James Harden, who's consensus top three or top four, whatever he might be. And so that, that certainly helps make his case. It also helps make Giannis's case too, though. I really appreciate your lack of adherence to round number bias. Like who's going to throw out. He's not top 18. Like you could have just said top 20. And I, I really appreciate you doing that. You're welcome. Um, you know, next episode, we're going to have to get you to do one of these intros or outros, I think. The next time Adam is on this podcast, he will do an intro or an outro. Until next time, though, uh, we just want to remind you, implore you, beg you, plead you, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you're getting this podcast. Regardless of that, head over to iTunes, throw us a rating. We do really appreciate it. Five stars only would be great, and then write whatever you want in the review. We are checking those. Follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. Follow Adam on Twitter at Frommel09. I am at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. Please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube.com, search Hardwood Knox. Pretty much all of our podcast episodes will be on there as well. And next time, or until next time, excuse me, we leave you with the shout out to the one, the only, we think he's going to be the Defensive Player of the Year and the MVP, Giannis Attentacumpo. We go for normally more niche names than that, but I think he deserves it if he's going to go, go in the company of Hakeem and, and MJ. Introducing Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer. Blending the smooth, creamy nitro taste of Guinness with hints of coffee, chocolate, and caramel. Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, your new favorite part of the day. Look for it where Guinness is sold. Must be 21 and over to purchase. Please enjoy responsibly. Diageo Beer Company, New York, New York.